Your office keeps on looking better, Jeff, somehow. <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm having a lot of fun. At some point, I, yeah, I've been prepping, uh, prepping something special. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be for this week's uh, blog post, but um, some point soon. You see my bait and switch, Jeff? Hey, awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, <sighs> should we, you guys tell me how this is going to roll. I'm, I'm, I have a bunch of questions for you, Henry, and I also have some questions for you, Steve. I also owe you some dates, Steve, and then Henry, of course, is welcome to those. Uh, so Steve is going to drive today's meeting, but if there's one thing I wanted to cover is um, the YouTube kindling document because you, you've been putting a lot of work into that and a lot of pathways are firing when I read that, when I read what you put in that doc. Yeah. Oh, one thing I want to remind you, Jeff, is, I mean, not remind, just like we can check right now. If you go to your Zoom preferences, um, I found out not too long ago that my video in my Zoom preferences, there's an enable HD uh, right. option and, I, and it, never was, it wasn't even checked. So I that's one thing. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. awesome. And then at, at some point I'll show you the, um, a little bit of what I was doing over the past two hours, but I'll, I'll let Steve uh, take the lead on this. All right, so we're gonna start off with the check-in and as usual, I hijack the check-in. I get like 50 minutes and then Henry gets 20 minutes and then Jeff gets like three minutes to squeeze in like an hour worth of wisdom. So let's start off with Henry today. Okay. Uh... I definitely want to talk about the YouTube doc, but I think what might be cool is I can show you. I, I have that as a bullet point, so we will get to that today. Yeah, awesome. Uh, let me share my screen really quickly. This was kind of a cool deal. So I learned how to, I've been using Adobe Premiere Pro, which is included in my tuition at San Jose State, that entire Adobe suite. Um, so it wasn't uh, too bad. So I actually listened to, our entire meeting from last week in full on Spotify at regular playtime speed three times. I, Jeff, I told Jeff this <laughs> every single time I listened to it, I, I saw something new and I, you know, just that realization. I, I when we talk about going slow, breaking it down and, and slowing down what's being presented to us and slowing down our own processes, it's something that I should exercise in my courses. So uh, that was really cool. And then, so what I did today after, um, listening to, through our meeting three times, I uh, opened up a notepad and I started timestamping, but not like how I've done in the past where I just timestamp a lot in our full hour long video. But um, I just put in some time ranges and then I went into, I imported the entire video into Adobe Premiere. And then I basically was able to cut and then nest each cutted um, segment uh, and then export it all at once. So it wasn't, it actually was pretty fast. So he, here are some examples of videos that are now partitioned into shorter segments, such as systems of content creation, something we covered. All of this is like just the amazingness that we've covered in just our last meeting. Um, articulating inequities of our society and values, uh, what it means to be fully ignited, First person you need to advocate for is yourself. Metacognitive processes are transferable. That was our little um, story of skateboarding and soccer. So 
my vision with the shorter format videos is one, uh, I don't want to put it on our audience to watch through <laughs> an hour long meeting, even if it's time stamped. I just think hour long video links often aren't clicked. And another one is we can like each of those videos that I just featured now, I really see us potentially blogging in the near future or future future. <laughs> we can just embed, embed that because the starting uh, initially when I would timestamp the hour long videos, I had thought there was a way to embed that link. So when we were to click it through our WordPress page, it would start there, but it actually does not work. So it doesn't take into account the T equals, the time equals. Um, so anyways, I thought that was-, that was That's so awesome, Henry. I would love to, can you share your screen again and actually show the Adobe Premiere um, file that you use to do that? I'd love to see that system. So it sounds like the um, editing that you've been doing is all in Adobe Premiere. Yeah. So not Camtasia. Not Camtasia. Awesome. That's um, exciting. Uh, I would love to do that, Jeff, but when I open up Adobe Premiere Pro, usually my laptop sounds like it's about to explode and that's without Zoom running. So <laughs> next time I will, I will prepare that or I can even record that uh on camtasia i know I, I i've been using camtasia for my graphics class so anyways i can record that and i'll show that process that's i mean so it sounds like one of the features that is useful there is that with a sync basically you can use the functionality of the software to partition content and export multiple videos from one file yes one large video file you just have to do your cuts and then you basically yeah, in Adobe Premiere, when you export all of them, it opens another application called Media Encoder. And then that'll basically export back after back after back. Is that is that something that you have to actively do or is that all within Adobe? Pretty much all within Adobe. The Media Encoder is, is part of Adobe. It's a different app, but um, it's after cutting, I just have to hit export and it does it by itself. Oh, interesting. And then the cut, basically, you have to highlight each cut as a nested, you basically nest. The feature, the functionality is called nest, <laughs> but it's not really nest. Um, and it will treat each nested sequence uh, by its own video if you export it that way. And so, and like those, those uh, thumbnails, is that stuff that you encoded in the video itself or is that stuff that you did in Adobe Spark and then uploaded those as the thumbnail on YouTube? That, that's separate. I did it in Adobe Spark and then uploaded it as a thumbnail. So Adobe Spark online version, yeah. downloaded that. Do you, when you do the online version, do you automatically port that from Adobe Spark online or do you download the thumbnail download. off Adobe Spark onto your local machine and then upload that in the corresponding field where YouTube says upload thumbnail? Uh, the latter option. So download local file, upload in that corresponding field. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> What, and I had another question on some of those, you have this beautiful uh, little brand uh, icon on the bottom right-hand side of your uh, YouTube videos. It says the learning code on it. You know what yeah. I Yeah, I do know what you're talking about. So when, when the actual video is playing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you do that through YouTube? Yeah, it, it's something through the probably... Yes, definitely through YouTube directly. How did you make that little? So I think I think that's called a logo, and I know how to get to that using the YouTube preferences or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it's not hard for me to define that. But my question for you was, how did you actually make those little letters? Did you do that in Spark itself, or did you do that in Adobe uh, Photoshop? 
also Spark. Also, it was like a templated thing through Spark and then just some plain. Just a YouTube logo. And then you just put the, the name of the learning code in it basically, and then uploaded that as the logo. And then YouTube allows you to place that in the bottom right-hand corner. Yes. Awesome. Some, some other um, people, they have like, <laughs> their logo is actually a subscribe button, <laughs> which is funny. I mean, that's not dynamic, but their little logo was a subscribe button. But yeah, I've seen that. Um, I've seen people leverage that. As super smart. I, um, I've been, as I've been doing my research, I realized like Henry, four steps ahead of the teacher, five steps ahead of class. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I don't know, did Lene get back to you about Adobe Spark? Adobe I have it. I'm using it. I just, I, I, yeah, it's not, it's online. I don't think the premium version um, is something that I want to do at this point. I mean, I, I think if I use it for a thousand videos and I can covering my own costs, then that's a different conversation, right? Uh, but the, the free version seems fully functional and better than what I'm currently doing, which is just to take a screenshot within Camtasia. I see. And I'm always happy to make you any logos. That doesn't take very much time. Yeah, I think it's worth, I, I, what I, I want to be like semi-functional. So if we like take Steve or Henry and then like multiply by like one-tenth, like I'd like to reach that level, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we we got to reach john meyer's level of his tech savviness that guy's pretty savvy in fact in his blog one of his recent blogs he features a quote-unquote reaction video of another math teacher trying to trying to react to her students work so what was that dan meyer dan meyer dan meyer the, the desmos guy who used to be a high school math teacher that, yeah yeah yeah. Oh, that's dan. Dan. <laughs> yeah yeah that guy's legit mm -hmm. hustling Steve, I'm, 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 I'm good with my check-in. Okay. Uh, Jeff, you want to do your check-in? Sure. I'm just uh, writing down everything you guys are saying. So, And I have like a loud keyboard, so. No, you're doing great. Okay, awesome. Um, things are going well. The, the office is coming along. At some point, um, I'll give, you, I'll give um, our community a full uh, uh, tour of this office it's kind of optimized for deep work um the uh this week i started filming again um it took because we moved it took a ton of um just it's taken like a week and a half to get matlab in the proper form which gives me some real um uh, empathy for my future students and um i'm recreating some of my content and so i had to do some writing and thinking um but as of yesterday the, I hit the record button um, and I think I'm about, uh, we'll see, I haven't done my, today I, I've already gotten um, eight plus nine, 17, basically 18 minutes of content filmed, edited and exported, not up on YouTube yet. Um, and then I think I have another like 10 minute video probably sitting that needs to be edited. Um, and so that's exciting. I'm, um, I'm really excited about this. I'm adding a whole new component to my class, which was my specialty in my um, graduate degree, uh, numerical computation. I'm gonna bring that into the MATLAB course. Um, and so that's fun and uh, hard work. <laughs> Here's to another 10, 10 to 12 weeks of grinding. <laughs> Jeff, I encourage you to actually uh, perhaps film your office tour and, and talk through that because yeah, yeah, as, as much as it, it'll be valuable for me and Steve, but I think many other students too. Yeah, no, that's what I had planned to do. Uh, you've been um, inspiring me to be creative and I've been watching um, 
the author Think Media. That guy has two or three different channels, Sean Canal, something like that. Yeah. Um, and so I've been really um, kind of studying the, the moves that he's showing on, in his videos. And one of them was an office tour. And I realized um, there are a number of things that I wish I would have known before I started this that would be useful. Um, and so I like I had planned on doing that. I, I don't know this next blog post that I'm doing. I, I meant to get it up last week, but once project at a time, it will be up this Friday by uh, 6 p.m. I think is my deadline. Um, I think I'd like to do like I, we haven't talked about this in a minute, but um, do you remember way back when in the um, oh, I don't think I can share my screen for some reason. I need to fix that, but I can definitely change that right now. Okay, you should be good. Awesome. So uh, way back when, um, one of the things that's kind of fun about this office is that it's designed for different horizons of focus to be able to capture all that stuff. Uh, it's the same thing with my hierarchy and my um, uh, digital um, memory system. So um, ampers, the little at symbol is uh, above the zero. So I like that up top. So if I click on GTD systems. All of my projects are in the projects list. And then um, right now, this is what I would call an active project. Um, and then, um, what were we talking about here? Oh yeah, so the different features of projects that I have, basically, these are all the projects that I'm working with on a daily basis, and there's just a ton of support documentation associated with each of them. Uh, it's just a lot of data, but I can pretty easily find it. Um, the thing that I wanted to show us, uh, I don't think the SSEIG, this, I got to retitle this. Um, can I retitle this the uh, uh, teaching and learning, uh, the learning code, I mean? Is that okay? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go ahead because we're done with that, that thing, but we're definitely not even close to, well, I guess <laughs> we're started. So that's a shared folder. I didn't want to do that without your permission. Um, one thing that I thought was pretty useful for you guys. Um, Steve, do you remember we were um, talking about um, different horizons of focus? Yes. Um, so the horizons of focus model um, is, is interesting. I like to categorize my projects by impact in my life. So I have about 10 major project areas, only a few of which are like super active with multiple active projects on it. So authorship, relationships, community and democracy. So right now, for example, one of the major open projects lists that I have in community and democracy is the 2020 election. Um, that's in, so if you were to look at this particular thing, that's my active project folder, there's these numbers on it. So I used to label them with the corresponding, so you see authorship is one. So I used to actually type in the label authorship, but the problem is over time, the project categories change, right? So then what I have to do is I have to delete the label and redo it. And then I realized, well, what matters is the category itself, not the label. So if I assign numbers to the labels, then I can change the category names and not have to actually relabel stuff. But I keep a list right over there on the computer. And that's on, so in my active project list, in my Someday Meiji projects, and in my inactive, they're all labeled associated with that. And you can kind of see, uh, this is for you guys at this point, but I'll do a, a formal uh, work here. So if you go into my active projects list, I kind of track all the active projects that I'm working with. Um, and then what's really interesting about that is 
for each of those projects, I have a next action item that I'm working on. This is not, I haven't updated this recently because I've been doing other stuff, but what's nice is that that allows me to kind of give a daily overview of the stuff that I need to get done for that day with corresponding due dates on it. Um, and then the corresponding project support files are found immediately in that active file list. So every time I want to talk about voting, I just pull up the, this thing, which is a hard copy, and then I have a corresponding soft copy on my computer of stuff that I work on, and that makes it super easy. So uh, super easy to kind of track multiple levels of projects. And what's interesting about that is when I deactivate a project, so for example, um, right now I'm doing my MATLAB thing, right? So when I did that, I went to my inactive full project list, which was over here, full of inactive projects on top and bottom categorized. And I literally just grabbed about 10 huge folders and put it in the active projects list. And immediately when I did that, that means I had access to like four years of work at my fingertips already organized in that way. Um, and then I, I track all of it. And so what's nice about this at the end of this quarter, I'm just, I'm literally going to take this, you see this FH courses, I'm going to copy and paste. So I take the engineering 11 YouTube videos, I deactivate it. So I take it off my active project list, put it on my um, inactive projects list. And then I take the corresponding files, put it in the inactive folder list. And then until the next time I touch it to think about it. And what's nice about that is like, I'm about to work about three months, like eight to 10 hours a day on this project. And so I'm going to get a ton of work done that I'm going to want to refer back to. And so that's kind of the, the organizational structure. Anyways, the thing that I wanted to check in with you guys about was um, if you remember way back when um, we had uh, gone into, so let's do active projects um, and then the learning code. So we had these conquering college documents. Um, and I, years ago, this, I don't even know when I made this document, um, maybe it's on here. No, it's not on here. Um, so we, I had, one of the things that I think is kind of unique about this project is to timestamp um, a lot of the interventions and principles based on how the quarter flows. Um, I would actually say that I didn't do this in this one, but I would, I should have, I'm not sure, there it is. Uh, so table design, uh, that's frustrating. Let's insert above. So video zero is to uh, prime belief, um, work on belief. Um, do you see the structure of my blogs? First blog post was to introduce what the learning code was all about and what our mission was. The second blog post was to prime belief. Could you guess what my next set of blog posts is going to be about? Something about goals. Yep. So I'm going to, it's probably going to be three or four because I have something like 30 or 40 pages on goals plus the work that you suggested, Henry. So this is an example of this one. Um, I suppose this is the learning code, which right now is not in proper place. Um, you gave me, Henry, some real inspiration. Where would I have put the learning code? Uh, oh, the learning code has its own space in my, you guys will be excited about that. Um, so the learning code has, a, has a, an entire um, uh, 
area, different from my project space. But Henry, you had spoken about um, this guy, Brian something or other, this dude? Yeah. So the next post that I'm going to do will be, I'm going to prime the beliefs. But as, as you, if you probably remember, uh, one of the things that I felt really strongly about when I was making this is that um, when we're talking about setting our, um, setting goals, which I call stay motivated, I had what I call like a pre, an intake survey with a bunch of questions about goals. So here it is. And then um, basically a bunch of activities. So I had some content that I've already made that I haven't updated yet on the website and then interspersed with activities, right? And so one of the things that I think I'm gonna do is to actually break this content into a number of blog posts, each of which has an activity worksheet, a PDF worksheet or a .docx worksheet that I can store at the bottom. And then another thing that I'm thinking about doing is um, making a quick video, nothing too high productive because I got other stuff on my mind for my engineering uh, class, but uh, basically show examples of some of the principles and practices, how I use those in my own life, right? Um, eventually, instead of me doing it, I would probably like to interview other students doing it. But for now, uh, in order to manage my limited resources, that's kind of the plan there. So um, I just wanted to kind of keep you updated and then get your feedback on that um, on that plan. What do you guys think? Is it too much, too little? As soon as I saw Brian do that, I immediately thought of <laughs> everything you've done for conquering college. So um, that that's so cool that we're resonating. Uh, I love the I I love that. Um, I wonder, as far as the blog posts and the content that Steve and I will be pushing out over the next couple months, um, I think naturally they're going to be aligned to if you follow that list structure, because there are just, there's just ways to easily align everything we're trying to talk about. Um, I wouldn't worry. So like one thing that I think for you guys, um, don't worry about the, so if we looked at that overall structure um, of the uh, project overview, I did this on purpose. And Steve, do you see this one? Yeah, you developed your own muscles. Yeah, I think I wrote that particular line in like 2014 or something like that. Um, because I, what I realized, and if you, if you actually look at this, it's pretty, like imagine if, if you had access, I would like to think, imagine if I had access to really high, uh, high production value material. I mean, if you haven't read this in a while, right? Yeah. Oh, and Jeff, I had a question. Uh, yeah. You said you're, I didn't hear what specifically you said you were gonna delegate to the, your students in the future. Oh, not delegate. Um, so, you know, one of the models for YouTube um, is to become the uh, sage on the stage. So, um, you know, there's a there's a, a lot of YouTube community members that will like highlight themselves as the example of success, right? Um, that is one model, but I, I don't think that it is the model that, I mean, I definitely think it's important from the standpoint of like giving people insights to who I am and how I work and being vulnerable. Like I definitely want to be vulnerable and show, um, just be authentic basically, right? Like who am I and how do I show up in this world? But from the standpoint of, um, of inspiring students, I, th I think diversity in, um, in representation is really important um, for the learning code. So 
one of the things that one of the practices that I want to get in the habit of doing is finding examples of students who exhibit really, really strong practices and perhaps even metacognitive uh, understanding of the, the principles behind those practices and letting them speak for themselves to channel some of what we're doing in the learning code. Um, to do that, I have to, I think it's good that we're building a platform because we can, as I, as I interact with students and as you guys interact with students, we can then do those interviews. And I would say that's much more like the video, as I'm learning about video influencers, they do that a lot, right? They find uh, YouTube influencers and they interview them as a way to highlight different ideas that are on YouTube and then also bring creativity into it. I don't, I, I'm not particularly worried right now. Um, video influencers is a um, business plan as much as it is a, um, a YouTube channel. And I respect that. What I'm thinking a lot about when I'm talking about this is uh, system navigation and system transformation. And so that's right now, that would be my major focus that that I can develop habits on a daily basis when I, I interact with about 120 students a quarter, 360 students a year, new, and then I have ongoing relationships with many students. I am always astounded at how um, bright and capable my students are. And I don't currently have a robust capture system to be able to get those students to show others what they show me. And so that's the statement that I was making, Steve, that um, right now in the early stages, as I write my blog posts, some of the videos that I'm going to make are going to be centered on my own practices. Part of that is just because I have to build, I'm, I'm partitioning cognitive load right now. It is much easier for me to learn and develop systems of video production when the only person I'm coordinating is myself than it is to learn how to do that as I'm having to send emails, coordinate timing, coordinate, coordinate, right? And so in the early stages, as, as, we, as I ramp up to the next level of production, I'm gonna focus on making sure those blog posts are done and then also um, hitting different media outlets with the blog post. So blog, hopefully at some point Spotify and also videos. And then eventually I think I'll get good enough that the interviews that I'm doing doesn't don't have to be about my own practices. They can be highlighting practices of student uh, success, I suppose, or student um, experiences that I actually engage with on a week to week basis or day to day basis in my professional life. Because it's within those testimonies that they are literally doing or perhaps struggling to do some of the things we're preaching. <laughs> yeah, so. and, and the, yeah, and this so often, yes. Yeah, yeah. Did that answer that question, Steve? Yeah, this actually, I, I remember you talking about this in the past, like a successful and not successful students, but just like, it's want to highlight, you know, the achievements of your students and from like, uh, I don't know, in any type of achievement, not necessarily like them being academically well, but just successfully navigating systems or doing something, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, one of the things that I that I like to counter this is uh, a paradigm shift, right? Um, we higher education has a very what I would call narrow definition of what success means, um, and I, I when I look at my students, um, I have what I would call and I'm still working on it, but I try to keep a, a bright. So when I met you and Henry, I saw very successful students. I still see very successful students. I see 
all-stars. Um, and there are, some, there are some things that you guys bring to your study life that, uh, that I think are uh, magnificent and um, noteworthy. And you know, part of what we're doing in this is to highlight those things for you guys. But I, I, you know, um, very often when I work with students, I see like tens of examples of this type of thing in each student, right? Um, and I don't, one thing is I don't know that the system always goes out of the way to highlight those things. And then two, uh, there are, I haven't found really systemic ways by which um, a college like Foothill, for example, uh, puts those, um, represents those, it, it broadcasts those, right? And so I think we as a team, if we get good at that type of interviewing and that type of highlighting, um, we can really challenge the definition of what success means, but then also empower individual students to recognize their strengths and then also draw from the strengths of others. There's, it's a whole library of content there, right? Isn't that um, what crafting our narrative is all about? <laughs> yeah, and I, so, and in terms of um, your guys' blog posts, don't worry, like right at this point in our, in our writing career as a team, just write what comes to your mind. We, as we get more sophisticated, as these systems become routine and we, you know, after we've met a year of deadlines, right? And we have, you know, we've really started to become uh, habitual content creators. At that point, I think we will have earned the right to start brainstorming um, more strategically about um, what order we should be writing in and what different content we want to put in and how we're going to organize it. And this, but at this point, like, I, I think it's better to just start writing and we can deal with referring back and refining later on in the process as we grow our skills. What do you think of that? Um, for, or at least for me, I think that's really important. Just like putting it out there without necessarily um, just a large oversight of like having to structure it really specifically or I don't know, just it's kind of like when you're writing an essay, kind of just brainstorm, we're kind of getting our ideas out there. And for us, this, I don't know if it'll be a couple months process, a year process, but I'm sure that we'll pick up and learn things along the way. After one thought, which was something I left on that kindling document, um, because a few meetings ago we had said after we each post five times, maybe we can buy a domain. But if I'm serious about uh, helping other students also think about what becoming content creators are, which I am, um, I'm not so worried about the domain, number one. Number two, like what we're doing, I really see not, like I don't, I personally have not seen anyone do what we're doing in any of my research in media over the last three years. Uh, so I think what we're doing really can inspire some other people to do the same thing, right? To, to find genuine conversation, to document and to think more deeply about um, themselves and their education. So this is exciting. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So anyways, that's um, that the what you just said, Henry, I kind of I'm kind of with you on that. Um, I don't there's still some the um, that YouTube book, the YouTube secrets book, they say two things that are conflicting. One of them is uh, start where you are, just use what you have, um, which relates to Daniel Coyle's keep it Spartan. But then the other one is uh, plan ahead. 
So plan to grow basically. So they talk a lot, they spend a few pages at least on the development of names and the uh, securing of social media um, outlets. And I do think that's important. So like if you have a YouTube channel name, get the social media name that associates with that so that if your channel goes big, um, you have access to those things. Um, I do think that we eventually will uh, want to take that seriously, but I, I'm not as worried about that at this moment. Um, I certainly don't want that to be an obstacle for daily productivity. Um, and so I just think like the practice of learning how to be productive is way more powerful than branding rights at this point, right? Um, Over the last week, I've um, been in a lot of study groups, <laughs> more than I've ever have through, especially virtually. <laughs> um, and it's just amazing how bright some students are in terms of how interested they are in the subject and how much time they've spent <laughs> on the subjects. And it's like, really, I, I, I really feel if I'm thinking about um, Jeremy Kuhn, the guy from Google, the mathematician from Google, and all the stuff that he's published on the math and science, I, I see my own peers being able to publish in that depth for the concepts in my courses. And, and what's really stopping them from doing that, right? Because, I mean, certainly there's some things like sharing exams, but as far as their understanding of the concepts the teachers are expecting them to understand, they could be some tremendous content creators that ultimately our, our help would help everyone in that's taking that course around the world. So yeah. Okay. Sorry, Steve, I cut you off. No, I was just going to mention on the agenda how the bullet point was talking about the YouTube kindling document. So we were just talking about that. So it was a great transition. Um, but Steve, we didn't get to hear your check-in because that oh, yeah. is higher. Yeah. So, um, uh, I'm doing well. I've just been, so I, I had put a text in that I'm basically, I've just been scouting the, the UC Davis website for undergraduate research projects. And I kind of, I have uh, on my wall, I have like three of the projects for the winter and for the summer. Here's my computer. Oh, but so I have it there just like remind myself that it's kind of what I'm aiming for. So the work that I do here is to hopefully land me in that because I know how Jeff mentioned, like the definition of a successful student is kind of narrow in academia. And I'm definitely like, by academic standards, I'm not where I probably, where most students, successful students would be. But by my own terms of success, I know that I'm just as good, if not better. So. I have to make up for things like GPA and yeah, GPA and the lack of experience and not as many connections as some people might have, but hopefully I can do it with just like planning and just consistent work. So that's what I've been up to. So I'm pretty excited. Um, just been working on my Python skills and I went to, I was going to order one of those linear algebra books, but it was like $60. And then I just went to my half price books and I found some textbooks. Um, although I don't think it's as good proof wise as the applied linear algebra book, but it's like a second edition of a 
I think David C. Lay textbook. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll just get it. It was like 10 bucks. So I was like, ah, I'm going to get that. And then I got a Python book as, as well. So $7. And I actually got some, some more. It's called uh, The Mathematical Experience. And then it's kind of just a lot about like the history of math and then just like a bunch of just random things like who's the author of that one uh philip j davis and reuben hirsch it just talks about like what is mathematics where is mathematics the mathematical community different experiences in mathematics like teaching and learning and then it just talks about some concepts as well but i just thought like it was a nice like not a specific thing in math but just like a general exposure uh, yeah, I couldn't hurt to help, and it was like six dollars as well. So I was like, "This is a steal." So yeah, so I've just been doing work and really enjoying my office setup. So it's like, it doesn't look good from that angle, but from this angle, what I see, it looks really good. <laughs> I know Jess, you look like you have a professional background, and mine just looks like a closet, some like motel, but. Uh, oh yeah, I also have a ring light because I do want to set up. I have soft boxes too, but that's kind of just takes up a lot of space. Because um, my brother has actually shot video, so he has all the recording materials. And because I do want to shoot some videos, um, kind of just like to document my process of like um, aiming for an undergraduate position, and this is kind of what I'm doing. Like this, just like track myself because I know. Like I look on YouTube, I ask questions like, what is undergraduate research like? Or what is the process of getting into grad school or these things? And I wish like, I'm not gonna be someone that's gonna preach and have an answer, but just documenting my process. And then maybe in the future, when I have the experience or I know that I've made a decision, uh, then I can post some information about that. So, and then I could also show like my own experience being where I am right now, like still questioning things and show that to kind of relate to the audience. But yeah, so that's me right now. I have three quick responses. Uh, one, I feel that pain of the GPA. Uh, when you brought that up, Steve, I'm, I'm thinking about like what my grad uh, GRE score needs to be to, to make up for my GPA too at the same time. Um, a second point is, even the most advanced undergraduate researchers at some point were in your shoes and in, in terms of like, what the heck does undergraduate research mean and what they're looking for. Um, the only difference is you're willing to document that process and share it to a larger uh, audience, right? Um, and then the third point, I forget, but you're doing some really cool things. So <laughs> keep that up, man. Oh, I remember. I remember the third point. The third point is the most funny point, which is uh, I I feel that the reason why Jeff is pairing us up and and this entire project is your um, interest, your ever-growing interest in STEM is so inspiring to see. And I think Jeff knew my (laughs) interest in STEM concepts has always been um, a little bit short. So uh, I'm so Every time you talk about STEM in that way and and seeing your investment towards STEM is super inspiring. So just know that. 
I don't know. I, don't, I, I already, I could see Jeff's face. He's like, that's not what I was thinking at all. Like Henry's really good at stuff. Uh, and I'll say the same thing. Like, no, no, that, that can't be true. Like you have so many strengths. Um, don't even think like that. Uh, but I was also going to say, I got through the getting what you came for. I read the first like six chapters, which is what I think I need because the rest of it is actually being inside grad school. And now I actually have like a really good idea of what getting into grad school is like and how to reach out to advisors. And I have like a set timeline that I can follow. Um, and I mean, I, yeah, I have the kindling document. It's like 20 pages and I'm glad I read it. And I spent a lot of time. It took me like two weeks to get, it was like barely 80 pages, but I got a lot of the information that I need. And it's like a, it's the second brain, like regardless if I do it or not, like, at least I know what it takes to get into it. And I have a schedule that I can follow. Um, so, I mean, there's obviously things I can still learn more, but I feel like I got a really good chunk of information that I need from it. Can I make a suggestion? Yes. Um, you know that, that calendar that you had with uh, um, quarter by quarter, not the yes. month by month, but the quarter by quarter? Yes. Can you put a post-it maybe next, so in between your uh, junior, your uh, second to last and last year, in the summer, you might put a post-it to, to read chapters seven through like, um, seven, 16 or 17, which is another 80 pages. But the reason is if you, um, so I agree with you completely at this stage, you like I wouldn't go and read those right now, but I would definitely read those prior to because you're probably apply for for graduate school your senior year, basically, right? Yeah. So like June 2023. But I think the applications are due in December or November. No, yeah, it's uh, oh, I have it. I have it in the I would have to apply. I don't know, I have to think my thing, but I have the schedule. Like, cause, because in chapter six, they actually outline like timelines of like how you would follow things. So let's see. I think it was, yeah, around December, November that you have to submit everything before your senior year. So yeah, finishing up fall of senior year. Yeah, so, so I have the, yeah, I have the plans of like what to do kind of or a general outline of what things to get done the spring of junior year, the summer before uh, your senior year, and then the fall of senior year. So what I, what I would recommend is have a post-it note as a reminder, and that summer before the application process goes, I might read deeply like you just did, like set aside a week or two to read chapters seven through like, you could say seven through 17, because like think about what you just did, right? You are front-loading the next three years by collecting that information right now, right? Yes. And so by the time you apply, that application will represent the information that you have now in practice, no? Mm -hmm. But at that point, you, you haven't prepped for the next three years yet, right? Yeah. And the application process, like one of the, so if, let's, let's assume you apply, so you, you now have like an overview of a plan for the next few years of your life, right? Yes. And you're going to basically now the job is to like execute that plan. Right. Yeah. Which is like the easy, I, I actually like to say that's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out what the best plan is. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not easy in the sense that it takes date. Like what, what I mean to say is though, this, this gets into the theme, not all minutes of work are created equal. If you didn't have the information you have now, you could work your ass off, but you would be working in ineffective ways, right? Yeah. But now that you have this information, like the, the job is just go out and collect more information and go out and collect opportunities to get towards that space, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the point of reading this book in those chapters prior to your application, like right as you're applying is, or you could even do it after you apply, like it doesn't, you could do it this, the point is that now it's on a post-it note, right? So it doesn't really yeah. matter when you do it, yeah. but it, before you go into, so if you apply in December, they're going to get back to you in like March or April, probably. If you get a positive vote of confidence and I'm going to say, don't, here's, you're going to hear something funny from me. I would not go for MIT. I wouldn't go for UC Berkeley. I wouldn't go for UCLA. I would go for a, a lesser, unless those schools have scholars that you specifically want to work with and you have a working relationship with them, right? So if you, if you know a teacher at that school or a professor at that school that has open PhD slots that you have a working relationship with and they are actively targeting you, that's a very different scenario. But if the only thing that you're going on is school recognition name and you're like, oh, MIT is really prestigious, let me try there that that's a recipe for being chewed alive uh be a big fish in a small pond and target institutions that are going to give you a lot of support when you do your applications if you get back from them they will probably depending on where you go and how much money they have they will probably either fly you out or have you drive out for a, a school visit a site visit yeah at that time i would i will recommend you can come back to this video at that point interviewing your professors when you do those interviews, the information in chapter seven through 17 is going to be highly relevant to you. If you don't have that information and you go into those interviews, you're gonna be at a leg down and you will not ask what I would say are critical questions of them. Don't trip, I plan, if you will still have me, to be working with you at, at that time, right? So I promise you that we, at that point, when I'm a little balder and a little grayer, uh, we can talk about that scenario again, but in terms of your own internal um, uh, calendar system, I would put a little post-it note there for you before you go into your uh, graduate school selection process, having access to the information in chapters seven through 17 is a super useful thing to do because you can use that to generate questions and look for red flags. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that's why I think one of the reasons I really want to get involved in undergraduate research as soon as I can is so that, well, it'll make me more competitive. I can at least build a relationship with someone that's more intimate with some professors rather than just showing up to office hours, even though like I'm sure that will help. Although in Zoom, I don't know how that's going to work as much. And um, also like, like, because I mean, it's a big commitment. It's like seven years commitment. Well, if I including the years before that's what 10 years so i definitely want to see like what is this process like of doing research like i want to get exposed to it before i make a commitment like that um so just being as informed as i can before i make a huge commitment like that uh, yeah so I'm, I'm glad i said that to put like even though it was only 80 pages which 
Like, it doesn't feel like a lot, but I, I gained a lot from those. And, like, it cleared up. It just seemed like a whole mysterious thing. If anything, my only doubts are just, like, how, like, it's just telling me to reach out to professors and other schools. And I'm like, wow, that's that just, like, it's hard enough to talk to a professor from my own university. Now imagine trying to bother a professor at a different university. Um, but I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Um, yeah, so that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you think of the kindling process? Oh, what? What do you think of the kindling process? Or better, what did you do? How did you kindle? Um, so first I, first I just like, I mean, I, as I read the book, I would type side to side, but then um, I didn't know how I felt about that. And then I, and then I read and wrote down things, which I feel like it stuck better for me. And then later on, I typed that information again. So I kind of went through it almost three times. So I feel like that really made it stick, but it took a lot longer. So I have to like, like that's why I barely finished my killing document maybe like two, three days ago, rather than like a week ago. Uh, but yeah, so that was my experience with killing. Yeah. Just, just real quick, um, to address Steve's data on finding um, people at other institutions. See, when you get your first undergraduate research opportunity, uh, professors are well connected with other professors at other institutions. So don't, don't trip yourself over that hurdle, right? Because for example, the research that I'm doing in the College of Ed with those two faculty right now, they're super connected with faculty from around the world. So um you just gotta find your first one right at davis that's why for me like instead of thinking big picture like get the phd it's like sorry i'm gonna just start small see if i can get some local undergrad experience working with professors hopefully like even if it's a great experience and it's a horrible professor it doesn't like push me away but uh but i I'm, when you get closer to that steve um I don't know the young professors at Davis. They've hired a number of professors since I left. So I won't have as much information about them. But a lot of the older ones, I, I have working knowledge of, um, of their personalities and their student-centeredness. Um, and I'd be so happy to talk with you about that as you strategize to do those applications and, and also think about, you know, I would ask you a few questions about the type of math that you want to do. And I'd also provide for you some, um, guidance about that type of thing. I would, I would always uh, advise um, focusing on applied math for a few different reasons, but um, I'd be happy to share that knowledge with you um, as you make, so that you have the information so that you can make a decision that you feel is best for yourself. Yeah, and I've seen a bunch of like the conferences of like professors talking about, and I've kind of just seen, I get a glimpse of what professors are like based on how they speak. And then also a lot of conferences from like I put it on the Excel sheet, there was one in like just Latino, Latinos in math. Um, and there's one professor, this Mexican professor, he's from Mexico. Uh, de Loera. Yeah, yeah, Jesus De Loera. Yeah, that guy was really cool. Um, yeah, I really liked the way he was. And then there was, an, I think, Mariel Vasquez, and she might be Puerto Rican or something. But she's in biology and math. Um, but 
yeah it was uh and they seemed really self-centered so i was like because i know jeff you're always like telling me like like oh some professors are assholes this is and i was like okay i need to be aware of that but then it's so weird for me to see a professor and he's like oh he's actually he seemed like a really cool guy like but hopefully i mean that's genuine um so yeah i'm excited to see what happens this next year yeah so that was yeah me talking about that was um another bullet point so i don't have to talk about my kindling document i guess um i guess i also wanted to mention i still have that goal of graduating debt free but hopefully through some undergrad research or something i can like get some stipend or something that can help um but i still have to go to the scholarship applying process um and my GPA like disqualifies me for everything because I'm probably like, I think I was at a 2.4, which is like horrible. Like that's like, how am I even in university at that point? So I feel like that's just a giant anchor for me. Um, Henry, you want to you talk to that one? Mm -hmm. um, your GPA matters for certain scholarships, but you, uh, a lower GPA can actually help for many other scholarships, Steve. So don't count yourself out, right? Always never count yourself out. Let them do that for you. And I would also challenge that, Steve. Like I, I would actually see, I would start asking questions at the institution about a, um, a revamp because had you not gone to Davis, had you gone to San Jose State, your GPA would have restarted when you came back, right? Perhaps, I'm not sure how that would work. But yes, maybe. I think that would have restarted and it would have restarted after you got a diagnosis um, for um, um, accommodations, which fundamentally, and let alone figuring out how to navigate the colleges, both of those things fundamentally change your relationship with your own academics, right? Yeah. So I'd actually say that the 2.4 uh, label is actually an un inaccurate representation of your capacity as a student. In fact, there is an inflection point measured sometime uh, after 2018, maybe? I mean, you probably know the exact date, right? Mm, it was two spring quarters ago. Or when did I start dating? Oh, it was only one spring quarter ago, so that was pretty recent. It was the last spring quarter. Yeah, and so I, I would I would make the argument uh, to myself, and I would start poking around the institution um, to figure out what metric uh, math they can do to actually capture that change. And if they can't capture that change, that's where I would be proactive about talking uh, with the scholarship committees, and I would actually call them, and or actually better show up to somebody's office that's on the committee with an appointment, and ask them questions about, hey, you know, my my cumulative GPA disqualities from the scholarship, but, and then have a, a, an actual argument why your post spring 2000 blah GPA is a much more accurate representation of your ability. Can I still apply for the scholarship given that, you know, like make a case for it, right? Because the, the reason that like, if you think about the, the why that rule exists, like why does the rule of GPA exist? Uh, so to evaluate some students. Is it is it the professor's money? No, it's some random donor. 
maybe random donor, maybe money from the university, right? So the people on the committee, do they have a personal stake in that money? Yeah. I would say they have a professional stake. Is it coming out of their bank account? Oh, no. Right? So, so there's some money that doesn't belong to them and they're trying to evaluate your ability. Is the, is the money infinite? No. So they only have maybe a limited amount, right? Yeah. Okay, so think of, put yourself in that, empathize. Okay, you are working as a professional, you are determining who's going to get the scholarship, and you only have a limited amount. What, who would you want to choose? Um, we'll use some random indicator or some indicators of driven students. And usually I think that correlates with like a high GPA. I mean, that's, that's a false assumption. That's a, that's a systemic assumption that I don't believe yeah. is true, right? Yeah. But they're using that metric, right? Yeah. Okay. In your case, is that metric at all relevant? No. Are there ways that you could communicate your drive to satisfy the demands of the community that clearly demonstrate your, um, your strengths as an applicant? I can look into it. I'm not sure if there is, but... Try to petition. Ask questions, collect information, just like you're doing. Yeah. Just go ask the questions, right? And if you get a no, that doesn't mean no. That means the person you're speaking with doesn't have a, a, a broad perspective. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I actually never thought about that. I mean, yeah. Then my GPA won't be as much of an anchor. <laughs> I've, I've seen personally and heard stories of people that turned low GPAs into tens of thousands of dollars and applications into highly competitive schools because the GPA is a story, right? Yeah. Do you know how many students in your, in your situation would have just gone away? Um, a lot. Like a it's, lot. I mean, it's something I feel more compelled to do. It's like, there's not apply. I mean, it's kind of because there's already so much stacked. Um, but no, I'm not talking about going away from the scholarship process. I'm talking about going away from school. No, yeah. I mean, I I, I stopped going to school like a couple of years back, but I came back. Um, I mean, I've stuck through it, but it's just that's, been. Um, that's a strength, Steve. Like that. That you like. I I would encourage you to find ways to leverage that strength and leverage that drive that grit that determination when i when we deep read grit hopefully you'll have some language to talk about that that book is really good by angela duckworth it's a good one it's not on my next five in my queue for deep reading but it's a good one that grit is a testament to your strength and your capacity and your job as an applicant is to show that to to convince the committee why, why does that show that you are just as deserving, if not more, um, I wouldn't more as a hierarchical system, but like there's some real strength there. It's just, you're going to have to be creative about how you demonstrate that and also creative about, uh, about how you navigate that list of checklists, but like put yourself in the shoes, empathize with those people. The, the, why do they have that GPA requirement? 
because I mean, my answer to that question would be, it's their way of vetting candidates so that they're not throwing money down the drain in their mind, yeah. right? If you have a limited amount of money, you want to bet on horses that are most likely to win. And to do that, you look at that previous track record. Previous success is no indication of future performance. But if a student doesn't know how to navigate the institution on itself, it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to finish their degree and then go on to, to bigger and better things, right? And so the GPA is a metric by which they're basically measuring assimilation into the system processes. But in your case, I wouldn't represent it as that. I would represent, I would look at the intention behind the GPA and then find ways to highlight those strengths. The intention behind the GPA is to find successful candidates, people with a track record of academic performance, so that if we dedicate this limited resources to those people, it's unlikely that it's going to be quote unquote wasted, given to somebody who is not gonna be able to actually matriculate and get through the institution. In my opinion, investment in you, Steve, is just as, uh, valid, just as powerful as invested in any straight A student with a 4.0. In fact, I would claim that a lot of those students, if they fell off the ball, would struggle to have the type of grit that you have, which means you've actually developed processes by which you know how to, how to recenter yourself through challenge, which is in itself a strength in the application. The difficulty or the challenge for you is how are you going to learn to write and interact, communicate, so that you can get yourself in those spaces to be evaluated and so that you have a compelling uh, case about how you can sell that challenge as a, uh, what, what do Americans love meritocracy and they also love, um, what's the story come from behind Rudy? <laughs> yeah. the, the underdog? The underdog story, right? Guess what, Steve? Oh, like American Idol, they always have like the sad story before someone goes to compete so that they can like be a heartthrob. So I kind of need a... You don't need to, you don't need to fabricate a sad story. Yeah. You can be authentic about it. Yeah, it's hard. But just hard. recognize that like your weakness is your strength. Like your perceived weakness in this particular area is actually a huge strength. And in fact, the strength of big players is their weakness because they have no such underdog story. Just look so, at our average professor when it comes to teaching. Yeah. Right. They never, um, not never, but they are, haven't struggled the way I think I'm struggling in terms of skills and habits when it comes to learning. Therefore, when they teach, they don't make that, they don't help other students make that connection, right? Because yeah. they've built that from maybe high school even earlier. Right? I, would, I wouldn't say that they haven't struggled. I would say that, like the way that I would, I would phrase that is, in order to be, in order to make teaching decisions that are based on information, you have to be in, based on the science of learning. You have to be familiar with the science of learning and our system doesn't, has no mechanism by which we teach content experts how to become professional educators. And so a lot of times, no matter what struggles our professors have gone through, 
um, they're not necessarily reflective on what those struggles imply about the system itself. And so they, many professors will look at their process of system navigation as an example of uh, what it means to be a successful student and then base pedagogical decisions on the apprentices observation. I went through this, therefore this is the way it happens. So they're making decisions in pedagogy that are based on anecdotes, not necessarily scientific data on how learning works. Um, and moreover, the highest achieving members of our academic communities are often the most privileged members because socioeconomic uh, factors and racial factors play into where these people grew up, the type of information they have to navigate the system. And so it ends up that uh, meritocracy is a myth, but not a, uh, a real realiz realized goal. And because content experts don't necessarily have mechanisms to analyze social structures, those things are in their mind may or may not be well uh, delineated. And so from that standpoint, like I wouldn't say that those folks hasn't struggled. Many professors do struggle and they have their own individual difficulties there. But I don't know that, that many professors know how to really break down that struggle and analyze it using multiple lenses and then make informed decisions about the teaching techniques so that some of the poor pedagogical choices that led to unnecessary struggles in their own um, navigation of the system don't get perpetuated in their own classes, right? And I think that's one of the things that that I want to help you guys think a lot about, you know, one, how do you navigate the system in a way that's super powerful, but two, how can you individually and we as a team build consciousness about larger uh, themes in the science of learning and social analysis so that when you make pedagogical decisions in your own classes in the future, you're doing so from an informed perspective and not doing so based on the pedagogy or the, the apprenticeship of, of observation or another way of saying it, you're not doing to your students what your teachers did to you just because you succeeded, right? Can't wait to highlight that part in our recording. Where I was coming from when I when I was first said that they weren't struggling is recently I've um, been helping my mom. She's been a tutor for the last year for Chinese uh, for students anywhere middle, elementary school to middle school, um, and I'm getting to know some of these students because I'll pop in and say hi and, and, and <laughs> just get to know them. But so many of them at that age have tutors for every single subject. So in other words everything Cal Newport has said about time block planning, they've already been time block planning since they were five years old. They've, right, they've conscious or unconscious been training their cognitive fitness in focusing on these concepts through mentorship or guidance or tutoring in all these academic disciplines and subjects. So um, what, I, what I was trying to say when I said that was like, if I've been doing push-ups since I was five years old, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm a professional push-up artist at 35, and I'm trying to teach how to do push-ups, I might miss some of these things because I, I haven't thought about that process. But yes. Yeah, that that, and I think those that analogy you just made is exactly what I'm saying as well. Like a just different language, right? 
And then for the last agenda item, I don't know if Henry, you wanted to talk about your your kindling doc. I mean, not your kindling, your blog post, and just from the misery of autonomy from a student's perspective. Yeah, we. Um, thank you for highlighting that. I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, I also like what you put on our agenda, which is talking about what Jeff had said last time, which is how might we reframe our boredom um, so that we get excited about where we're studying. So the um, inspiration behind the blog post on the misery of autonomy <laughs> from a student's perspective is actually similar to what I just touched on, right? Um, being actually earlier when Jeff was saying that not all, I don't know, focused times are created equal, or if we have a plan that is well thought out and proven to be effective and efficient, then executing that plan um, isn't We'll, we'll provide the most gains. However, if we have a plan that isn't well thought out and is solely based on what we've done in the past, so in learning research, I guess, study skills such as highlighting, rereading, et cetera, um, are the ones that we double down on when times get tough. That is actually not the best plan to, to go about and execute because there's only so much rereading and highlighting that you can do before you realize that you're still not gonna fully grasp the concepts during the exam time or during the uh, project time. So yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Keep going. Mm. So when that gap of understanding or the gap of the expectation of what our professors are expecting us to um, recognize in our courses gets larger and larger. But all the other factors are the same. So if all my tools are still the same tools and I'm still just exercising those tools or I'm still spending X amount of minutes on whatever I do with my discretionary time, it becomes really miserable because as every student knows, as the term progresses, things get harder. Um, so that can, that misery also kind of, I, I think, also can turn into boredom in a sense that you're not really sure what's going on. Like last meeting, I made the analogy of going to class is similar to going to a comedy show without knowing any like living under the rock for the last five years because you have no awareness of pop culture no awareness of current events so when a comedian is dropping the punchlines, you won't get it and that's what i'm facing in i would say every single one of my four computer science courses this semester right because every every lecture there's actually a ton of punchlines and a ton of keywords and a ton of names and a ton of definitions and if I can't prime my system, which is usually done so by reviewing the lecture before today's lecture, then that gap just really, really kind of unfolds. 
what are your thoughts about that, Steve? Yeah, so I know for priming at least, like the idea everywhere I hear it from like whether it's from Parkley or from Jeff or just from any YouTubers like Thomas Frank, like it's golden and I've tried to implement it. And as soon as like basically a regular quarter happens and you're behind on something and then well, you're like, okay, should I review on the things I'm behind on or should I preview the next thing? And I'm like, I'm going to just review. And then you kind of, I just, or at least me, I just abandoned priming in general because like I don't want the snowball effect even though it's happening. I'm just trying to reduce the snowball. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I haven't found a system to be consistent with that. And that kind of frustrates me because everyone says it's like, a golden nugget and I want to implement it so badly but every time I attempt to do it I just I can't and it's it's that's something for me that I really want to figure out yeah my rant what about you Jeff have you, you I'm sure you integrated it so here's here's a question I have for you what does that tell you about the act of lecture It's not efficient. Um, well, I know like, oh, I was gonna say if, I think I'm more proactive than a lot of students, at least that I know. Um, and so if I can do it and I'm having trouble engaging, then I'm gonna say a lot of students out there, more than half are struggling to engage. So it's not really an efficient system to. That, so the first thing that I wanna say is, you know, we last week we highlighted that paper by I think a guy named Scott Freeman. That paper actually justifies as scientifically as possible. It's you know all teaching is is subjective anyways, but it does a metacognitive analysis of 20, 225 papers that basically say lecturing is to learning health what cigarettes are to physical health. Like it's a shitty system. Right. And, you know, another problem that I haven't seen addressed in the research literature from the standpoint of like quantitative statistical analysis to justify that this is true. Right. The four year degree was created, I mean, formally speaking, like 1930s, 1940s. But we've had like nine, 80 years, 90 years of technological development from that. And we haven't changed the structure of that degree. And so what ends up happening is it's the five pound bag problem. You're trying to find, fit 20 pounds of manure into a five pound bag. Well, guess what? <laughs> five pounds can't fit 20 pounds. It just doesn't happen, right? And you know, a lot of teachers will think just because they can talk fast students are understanding, but the issue that you're noticing, Henry, is like learning doesn't happen on a, on a schedule that's defined by the teacher prior to starting. Learning happens when you actually sit down to learn. And this is, I know you said something really relevant last time, and I, and I, but I do think it's worth mentioning. You said, I wanted to show myself and Osama and all the students that I could do this, and I wanted to get ready to grad school, and I get that. I, you know, this is a joke, it's meant to make you laugh, but would you agree that getting hit in the face and being able to like survive it makes me tough? Okay, so then I could hit myself in the face really, really hard until I'm bleeding and show other people how tough I am, right? But 
if I already know what that's going to feel like, and I, and I know that I can survive that, is that a necessary exercise for showing toughness? Like, in fact, maybe I would want to like re reorient, especially if I know some of the dangers associated with that, right? Like a broken nose, bloody, you know, and the same thing is true. Like, I understand the idea, especially, I understand it because I went through it. Like we want to prove to ourselves that we're capable, right? Um, until you can say this at any time of the day or night, Henry, you're capable. Like, I, I want to hear you say it, like right now, actually. I would love to hear you say that. <laughs> can I hear you say that? I am a capable student. Okay, can I hear you say that if, you if I really set my mind to it, I can get straight A's in all four STEM classes? If I really set my mind to it, I can get straight A's in all four STEM classes. That's right. Okay, so we've now established that as a fact. Right? <laughs> so let, let, let us now, let me now suggest that signing up for four STEM classes is the, to show that you can do it is the equivalent of me punching myself in the face until I bleed to show that I can take punches. I can do it, but strategically speaking, like I already know the outcome of what's going to happen there, right? And I think one of the things that is so hard in this system is to reframe the discussion from what can I do to adapt to recognizing that the system as constructed is broken. And so the goal is to optimize choices within a broken system. And what you guys are noticing, the one of the first things that I would say is, it is really what you, that, delicate balance that you guys that you're trying to find is fucking hard to find. So let's just start there, right? I didn't really have my systems down until my second year of grad school. And to be honest with you, Steve, I was up at six and I'd work till 10 p.m. And literally lecture would end and I would spend about four to six hours per lecture rewriting lecture content. And that happened within 12 hours of the lecture being delivered. While I did it, I did it in the QA section of the, uh, of the UC Davis main library. That's the quantitative analysis for uh, math majors. And I would get four to six STEM uh, math books on that subject out on a big ass library table. And I would work through my handwritten lecture notes while looking at those math textbooks to fill in the details. After that happened, the next morning is when I would do a synopsis of that. That's, you know, so if you looked at a single class, I was spending somewhere between like six to nine hours of lecture processing between a Monday and Wednesday lecture. Now, multiply that by four classes for me and add that up for three lectures per, per week, three lecture classes per week. So a total of nine classes per week. That's 81 hours of time that breaks a cardinal rule of mine, which is when I'm scheduling, I can't do more than 56 hours. Now, of course, I always did more than 56 hours in, in that stage of my life, but the point is not, the point is the scheduling decision, that's where pro, uh, due diligence comes in, right? And so I think one of the things that, that we gotta realize is like, let's, I would encourage you, this is a, a food for thought. This is not a problem with you, Henry, or you, Steve, or me, Jeff. This is a systemic problem that has to do with poor, uh, poor design of individual classes using harmful techniques. 
statistically, like you can actually justify statistically that lecture is a bad technique. <laughs> I'm happy to point to those resources, right? And uh, an education system that is not designed for, um, for the nuances of individual life. It's designed for basically, you know, uh, churning the crank, right? Could you imagine if you bought a car, a model of a car that killed 40% of people who drove it? Would you ever buy that car? If you then got into that car and died, would you blame yourself for the type of driver you are? Would you, would you somehow like say to yourself like, oh, I just need to turn the wheel differently. And, but that's what the college education system is, right? It's not physical death, but it's the death of a dream, no? 40% of students that start college don't finish. So given that information, the question that I would have for you guys is, what type of scheduling decisions do you make to empower your learning? And so I think, Henry, the thing that I, that I, so you're going through this right now and I would definitely do your best to finish it. I would challenge you to ask the question of yourself, could you drop one of your STEM classes this quarter and still graduate on time? I need to look into that for sure. Ask the question. I, don't make any decisions, just collect the information, right? Like call your academic advisor, uh, look at your, like, if you dropped at this point in the quarter, in the semester, can you still withdraw from one without consequences, right? Collect the information. Don't make any decisions on it. Just collect information, right? In the future, given what you've just gone through and given how much time it takes you and all, like, here's a question that I have for you. What are you noticing about the amount of time that it takes to fill in prerequisite knowledge? Five times as much as I previously thought when there's more than two STEM courses. Yeah. So if you're in this scenario, when does that decision, when does this pain actually happen? Does it happen when you're in the course itself? I could have mitigated it when I was scheduling. And I, I agree with you. I think what you're saying is really powerful. I, I, I understand the idea that it is important to learn how to do these things. I can tell you there were very, very few quarters when I took more than two STEM classes. I think there, in, in my nine years of college education, I think there was one quarter when I took three, three STEM classes and it was brutal. In my graduate career, I did it a few more times, but some of those were self-paced and had take-home exams. And by that point in my career, I had been practicing deep work, what I now call deep work habits for like six years. So I wasn't simultaneously balancing the, the development of new study skills with the, the, the um, tumult of a quarter, right? Or a semester. And so I think, you know, I, I'm not gonna give a direct answer. I, I, I have to get going pretty soon, but the one thing that I, this is, this is a keystone problem in the development of, of, of a strong academic performance. The direct question that you're asking me is, you just gotta try and try and try again. Like, Figuring out how to navigate lecture is the equivalent of figuring out how to not bleed when being punched in the face. There's like, lecture is a shitty mechanism. It's a bad mechanism. Like the, the reality is we shouldn't be lecturing. Like our system shouldn't be doing it. In the meantime, coping mechanism to work through that, there are some coping mechanisms which basically guarantee 
pay attention to what's in lecture and then go teach yourself on your own time everything that person just said from your own resources. <laughs> yeah. Like that's literally the only way that I could get through lecture and then have a mechanism to be able to recall it the next day. But just like you're saying, Henry, that process is so time intensive that it is actually physically impossible to do that type of work in the amount of time scheduled unless when you're making those scheduling decisions, you are super judicious about preemptively opening that space that you need. And so I think one of the things that you're running into Henry is there is a lot of pain here, but that pain is not about, in my opinion, not about your capacity. It's not about your study skills. That pain is about a system that is designed to not really empower you and about a scheduling decision that you made for a very, very good reason. You made it, that's a good decision. But now that you're in it, this is where I would start leveraging this experience. Is it physically possible to do what you need to do given the time that you have? Had I been exercising deep work since high school, maybe. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, and that, and okay. So that's, and so what you've done is you've like, that's the equivalent of me going to an NBA court and trying to play, right? And so I have to recognize that that's a decision that I made and, and like, and then put myself in a position where I can make a different decision so that I can support the type of growth that I need. And as I grow those skills, this is why I've said so many times to you guys, like, this is a 10 year process. This isn't a one year process, right? So that you can take that, those long-term goals and spread it out over a period of time so that you're not so um, overwhelmed. Yeah. Yes. And, and so that you can give yourself a fighting chance in that system, right? So here's, here's, I have an assignment and then I'm going to, I have to sign off. Between now and next week, Henry, and I want you to report back to me on this. Please ask the question, how would academic of trying to withdraw from a class this quarter, which one would you withdraw from? Why would you withdraw from it? If you were to withdraw from it, could you still accomplish the academic goals within the time frame that you did? If not, you know, and so that's one set of questions associated with that. The other set of questions is the other option. Assuming that you're going to stay in all the courses this quarter, what can you do directly next quarter? Because I'm sure classes, you're going to sign up for classes pretty soon, right? Like within a month? Yeah. Okay. So even if you don't withdraw this quarter, you know, research what it would mean to withdraw this quarter so you have that information you can report back. Don't make any decisions, it's just an information collection process, right? Another part of this thing is what can you do in your next set of classes and with your academic plan to never be in this position? And instead of like, here's the claim, Henry, this isn't about you. Like you are fucking capable, you are full, you are intelligent. This is about a broken system and you're, you're noticing as you're in that broken system, it's actually physically impossible to do this. And if you, Henry, and you, Steve, and me, Jeff, who are smart, bright, fucking hard workers, if we're struggling through this, giving 100% of our effort and we still can't do it, that's, that is a vindication of shitty system design. Right? I learned so the, the question is, yeah. Okay. Um, just real quick, I learned on the being on the student success committee, first generation college students, STEM majors at San Jose State, only 15% graduate in six years. Yeah. So that if that's oh not- Oh my God, so it's, 
there's even 85% death. Right? That's like buying a car that 85% of people die in. And, and, and the six is also key there. That's someone who extended their timeline two plus years. That one thing I want to say is that blog post that you had, that freaking data that you shared was just so awesome, dude. That data, that educational data about like, that was freaking awesome. It would be, can you get that same data? The thing that you just said, can you get a, a reference to that? Yeah, I'm going to find it. I have a drive. Okay, find that reference in your free time, right? I, I'm going to go okay. and we'll see each other next week. My to-do list is to get that blog post ready. So it will be Friday, 6 p.m. is my due, due date. Okay. Mine is those two points and some research on my next blog post. I'll start getting ready for my blog post as well. Bye, Jeff. Take care, Bye, guys. Take care. Okay, let me end this.